Hello and welcome to the Fellowship Phase, an Adventures in Middle-earth podcast. I'm Josh and that's Callum. We're going to give you inside information on how to find your own path through Tolkien's world. Beidric and Carhu now turn back north, hoping to meet with Bjorn at his home beyond the old ford. Runin, it seems, is content to remain with the woodmen for now, who have welcomed us and offered their halls to us as sanctuary. He practices his music with their bards and learns much from their hunters. Yet for my part, I am left with questions. I must know more of the splintered axe and of the wild man who long held its long lost peace. Hello, Callum. Hello, Josh. Another excerpt from the horrible journal that James has kindly allowed us to share. I have to say, I really enjoyed reading them at the time when this was the the main thing that we was doing socially because they couldn't leave the house. How did you find it reading a journal which is in Torvald's voice? It's written from the perspective of character in a world that you are leading us in. Was it strange reading from like the other perspective? Um, it was so interesting. People often talk about when you're running a game that it's really useful to look at your player's notes and see... What do they remember? What was the thing that was significant to them? I guess like in last episode, we were talking about running these big characters in Tolkien's world. And it's funny that, you know, I, I also have run a bit of a homebrew D&D game. And probably the most memorable characters are... I'm going to see if you, you say what I think you're going to say. Jamie? Oh, actually, that's true. He was quite memorable. Okay, well, the, when he first arrived at the dock <laughs> at the place, I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, there was some guards and you wanted to speak to them and ask their names. And I was like, I don't know, Bob and Rob? And then they became these characters <laughs> that you kept talking to. And they were really memorable. And it was because I had to just ad-lib them and come up with stuff and it, it made them quite in- interesting, I guess, in a way. So... I forgot what the point was. Oh, yeah. So the notes are quite useful because I can could go back and see like what was it that that was hitting? What was they catching on to? What were the things they were interested in? And also what were their future plans? So they were really helpful. It's given us a good scene setter for this one. We talked about in the very first episode how much I love Bjorn and the Bjornings. It was the reason I wanted to be Phaedric. And once we got over to the Vale of Anduin, between the Misty Mountains and Mirkwood, and we were in Theodric's homeland, there was the chance to go and see Bjorn. You know, big headliner, main character time, go and have a chat with him. Very exciting. And in Adventures of Middle-earth, there are, much like the journey rules, which we've discussed, there are mechanics about how these audiences with main characters happen. And that's what we're going to talk about today basically introducing mechanics to a social encounter, which is quite fixed. We ran an audience yesterday and we were talking about it afterwards. So 
it is is useful to to have this frame and say like this is this is how it's going to work and again the a lot of the audience rules are in the player's handbook but there is additional things in lore master's guide which are are slightly hidden and add and there's also a lot of really helpful commentary on how to run it and some suggestions about how to prepare um so just to outline what we're going to talk about so and the steps of an audience, the audience summary is one, the lore master plans the audience, setting the motivation, expectations, and outcomes of the person who is, that the player characters are seeking an audience with. I'll go into that in more detail. And then the lore master sets a scene. And then one of the player heroes is nominated to introduce the company and they have to make a initial check. And that determines the final check of the audience. And then you have a, a, a role-playing session where various interactions have. And in advance, you've decided the person who's running the audience, if certain things are mentioned or not mentioned and how the player characters interact with them can either, it can modify the final outcome role. You ask for a final audience check and you can suggest, you might suggest things that can be used to, to to add a bonus. So if you feel like something's particularly relevant then you might give bonuses, which you can do ad hoc. So that, that happened yesterday. And then once you know what the outcome is, so there's basically in advance, you've said, you know, if they roll this, this is the outcome. If they roll this, this is the outcome. So it comes down to the roll of one dice at the end of this role-playing session or section. So it's quite rules heavy. They've taken a part of role-playing games, which is very common, which is a social encounter with the character and they've fitted quite a chunky framework of rules to make that happen now should stress this isn't how every social encounter is run oh yeah we talk to loads of npcs in just quite an informal way mm. audiences are really only for really big characters so bjorn was one who we spoke to early on but we're talking you know lords major characters in Tolkien's world. So that, that's probably the level, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's two things to maybe explain. Uh, one is patrons and the other one is sanctuaries. So in um, patrons are essentially a, a mechanical statement of people that will maybe give you quests and will help you. Sanctuaries are places where you can go and you can take a long rest, take a fellowship phase. And actually, one of the fellowship phases that you can undertake is to turn somewhere into a sanctuary, which yeah. you've done once. Quite often, you've turned up somewhere, and then one of the outcomes of the audience has been that it becomes a sanctuary for you if you do well. So you've yes. got a lot of sanctuaries. Like, for example, at the end of the very first quest, in giving that the artifact over, you got all the woodman settlements as sanctuaries. Uh, so that was really useful for you. Was really quite powerful actually because resting is a really difficult mechanic in aim, yeah. and finding sanctuaries can be very difficult. So, yes, audiences can have a very positive effect, much like with the journey rules, which we talked about. It certainly feels to me as a player that a lot of this happens behind the screen. So, talking about it and summarizing it feels quite rules dense, it feels like quite a sort of crunchy mm. way of doing it, but it doesn't feel like that playing there actually isn't that much in the way of dice rolls. There's a roll at the beginning and then a roll at the end. And then the vast majority of what we as players are doing is just role-playing. It's, it's really you as the lore master that has 
tables and bonuses. It's quite difficult to run. I get, we've spoken about this, uh, not on the podcast, but I definitely, of all the role-playing games that I'm involved with, uh, and that's been a lot now, like running, <laughs> yeah. running D&D 5th edition, playing in it, playing once in AIM, running AIM, playing the Alien RPG. We have Dipped Our Toes and other things. Oh, we did Tales of the Loop as well. We did Tales of the Loop and good call out to the Alien RPG. Always happy to so discuss at any point. Anyway, I've loved all of them, but I think my favourite thing to do is to run Adventures in Middle Earth. It's just so evocative. I love being able to tell the story. But it, it can be really mentally taxing. <laughs> I think I quite like that slight stress of it. It's not stressful, but, you know, you really have to be... Do you remember that time that I was incredibly hungover? I ran a game. Yes. <laughs> I do remember that time you were incredibly hungover. I thought I think you joined I don't know the, how I managed that. The session and you told us and we kind of said like there's no pressure to run the game like you we're here you to have Ill. fun. You did look ill. <laughs> you soldiered on and it was uh I mean it's great fun to play. And DMing's fun, but DMing there's a lot of plates that you're spinning all at once. And we're pretty invested in the world. Like we would, we as players love it and we're sympathetic to you as the lore master, but we wouldn't want things to go wrong <laughs> because, because you hung over. I think it made me feel better. I felt a lot better playing. Good. Um, and I, I wonder if it's maybe worth framing audiences because as you say, it's, it's rules heavy. And I, I think the example audience that I'll use is the audience with Bjorn, which is one of the books, because I don't think it would be, it, would be, it wouldn't be too much spoilers to everyone kind of has an idea of his character so his motivation and expectations wouldn't be too much of a surprise i won't go into detail so it's not too spoiler heavy but just to give you an example of how that might work um but what examples of audiences can we think of in the in tokens world so well i actually think bjorn is the perfect example in the rules because he's a very good example in the books which is that gandalf tells the uh, the dwarves and Bilbo that realistically they need the help of Bjorn, this unusual character on the east of the Misty Mountains, and that he's quite quirky and he's quite particular and that they need to approach the scenario carefully. Now, in that case, it's they don't want to mob him with the whole group. And Gandalf is suggests sort of trickling out a little bit you know, one at a time, two at a time, and really speaking his language, being careful with his animals and being respectful. Um, and it's quite fun in The Hobbit, like it's quite playful, but it speaks to what the rules are, which is that when you're talking to a big influential character, you need to speak their language mm. and you need to approach it sensitively and you need to approach them in a way that they are likely to give you what you're looking for. So I think... The example from The Hobbit, uh, and there are loads of examples, like they obviously have the audience with Elrond, this huge moment in The Lord of the Rings. Um, there's it, The Hobbit late on, when they go to Eskaroth, they have an audience with the master there. There are loads of examples of it, and I think Bjorn, both in The Hobbit, as a bit of literature, and also our game, is a good example of a quirky character who there were definitely pitfalls that we needed to avoid, and there were definitely boons that could be won if we did well. So yeah, that's that's probably a good example. 
Yes, that's an excellent example. And actually, I think another good example is uh, Gandalf and uh, Pippin in Lord yes. of the Rings turning up at Minas Tirith. And I, I'm yes. going to use that to explain some of the rules later on, because I think it'd be really quite funny if you were running that game as a lore master, the two player <laughs> characters, one person playing Gandalf, doing his best to make sure that you you get the motivations, the expectations right for the audience. Not that you would know where you are, but Gandalf probably would have an idea. And then the other player character is Pippin, who's just ruining everything, <laughs> jumping in, but then unexpectedly offers his sword or service, and um, maybe that has a plus bonus benefit. So maybe before we we go jump right into the rules. So before the audience, before the player characters even get there in advance, um, you you need to plan your audience. It's not something you can really get on the, on the hoof. I have done that, but I wouldn't recommend it. It, it there's a lot to think about and you'll find yourself being you, know, you can basically want to establish you know these player characters are turning up and to make the world real this person that they're speaking to has to have pre-established ideas about the world and things that they want and ways they want people to interact with them now in the books you'll find a lot of rules so most um of the profiles of npcs are important ones will generally have rules for audiences or in the pre-written adventure. For example, Bjorn, um, he has a motivation of, he wants an honest, direct account of what's happened. That makes sense? Not weasel words and guesses. He just <laughs> wants the facts, which is a really lovely way of writing it. So, you know, it kind of helps with your role-playing a bit. And set that up. So if you've got another NPC that you've made up or it's not clear in the books and then... What is their motivation? And their motivations might change. So in our game, Bjorn has, you know, undergone some character development of his own uh, based on events that have happened yeah. through the time. And the other thing that you need to set in advance is their expectations. And this is where you put on uh, modifiers for the final check. So I won't read them all out. But for example, Bjorn expects to be treated with respect, but without flattery, courtesy, or honeyed words. <laughs> Which I think is an interesting use of the honey. You know, you put your honey in your yes. your cakes, but you don't put it in your words. Um, there's quite a few expectations that he's got, and they're really, they're really interesting, actually. And I think on that first check, you had a couple of pluses and a couple of minuses. It helped a lot that Theodric was there, and he was sort of familiar with Bjorn and friendly with him. And I, uh, I imagine that Denifor um, in that audience... <laughs> Perhaps his motivation was Boromir's gone off and he's died. I've got his stuff is washed up. Someone needs to tell me what happened and uh, there's some blame. And there's probably some expectations in there about, you know, being respected and perhaps um, other things about his established relationships with others. And that once you've done that, you're, you're sort of good to go, I guess. Yeah. From a player point of view, I suppose the prep... And this helps, and I, I suppose I'm appealing to players now, as a player and someone who also DMs. If you're planning to go and see a big character, and there's a lot of planning ahead in this because journeys are a big part of it. You know, you, you're planning where you're going. If at the end of your journey you want to see Elrond or Bjorn, or you want to see the Steward of Gondor, if that's possible, let the lore master know in advance oh, yeah. so that they can prepare because however much you know the world is real and you should be interact with it as much as you want 
lawmasters do not have infinite time. They can't prepare everything. So do them a favor. And I say this as someone who's DM'd. Do them a favor. If you intend in a session or two to have an audience with someone, let them know so that they can prepare so that you can rock up at their door and the whole thing goes down well. That would be my, my plea to That's everybody great. out there. Uh, the next section that they recommend in the rules, which I think is good, is is setting the scene. It is quite there's quite a lot of mechanics here. So um, there's some sections in the book. There's actually several different bits where Bjorn's Hall is described um, in Wildland Adventures in the um, in I think in the Player's Handbook is a bit on it as well. Um, so I read through that and got an idea in my head of what it would look like, and you know, you come in as a large hedge, speaking through all the animals, a fire. They talk about when you meet important characters to have it built up and uh, anticipation. So I think Bjorn was off doing something. You know, it's not as imp- having some way of ramping up the tension, perhaps. Yeah. Or yeah. making it more dramatic. So the 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 audience that we ran yesterday was with Elrond, and um, I'd been thinking a lot about how that would run and the interaction and the build up to it and sort of building up the mystery. And I think Bre- Brendan, who ran the other events in Middle Earth game, did that really well when he ran an audience right at the very beginning. We didn't meet Elrond. We, we had it with, with Lindy or another elf. And it was really, I remember feeling as a player, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like on yeah. the other side. I think he did a really good job with that to emphasize. It's about emphasizing that the person you're having an audience with is probably more important and probably busier than you are as player heroes. And again, it just emphasizes that the world is real. It's a shared world and that things are happening in it, whether you as players are interacting or not. Like Elrond is a character who has a story which Tolkien told, which stretches over thousands of years. And whether you speak to him that afternoon or not, things are happening. And it does feel like that building up the tension. Yeah, and you you want to get an idea of like the room that they're in as well, the feel of it, establish yeah. how it would be to be in that setting. You know, where are they sitting? What's the interaction? What's the height levels? And the Elrond one, the SRD, I spent quite a long time describing a tapestry and how that made you feel, which was I, I quite enjoyed doing that. I really like that. It gave the sense it was quite otherworldly and a little bit magical. I think it helped give that sense that being with the elves was quite different to an experience that we'd had before. It felt special. The other thing to prep, actually, this is a sidebar, I guess, and it comes down to a lot of things, is music. So um, we run it on roll 20 and I load music up and it is a bit clunky, I'm not going to lie. I think if you were in person, it would be easier because you'd have more playlists or or things uh, set up. But, you know, if you're going to have an audience, so I have like different folders for audiences of different people, and music prepared so you know just have a think and you know what's the scene you want to set because i feel like that really helps with the setting of the scene as well you don't want something too dramatic you want something quite ambient so we've set the scene player characters are there and they have chosen their representative who's going to step forward and they have to roll a dice that's how it starts so the first check is what's called a traditions check. And I think we probably will need to explain what that is. So traditions is a skill based on intelligence and it measures your ability to recall the proper courtesies and etiquette expected by the different cultures of Middle Earth, along with some of the stories, their people, their history. But the main use in the rules is for gaining audiences. And I'll be completely honest that I often... Don't use it or forget to use it. 
time. <laughs> There's definitely times where I should use traditions and I kind of forget. Um, anyway, it's quite it's quite situational. But you come in and you get the player to make the traditions check. And I think it's useful to get them to make the check before they do role-playing. I don't know how you feel about this, Josh. Definitely, yes. There's nothing worse than being like, you like, I do this and describe it in detail. Or like, it's particularly as a charisma-based check. And you're like, I say this. And you feel like you've role-played it really well and you're like really satisfied with it. And then they're like, okay, roll a persuasion check. Oh, there's a natural one. Like, how does that... And then not only is that a bit disappointing for the player... But as the lore master, it does make it quite difficult to try and describe why it's a failure. Yes, I totally agree with you. I think that we'll maybe discuss this when we've at the end sort of bringing together all of the audience rules. The idea of adding the roles, roles of the dice into the role playing and where it gets a little bit murky. This is one of those. Yeah. Whereas I think if you roll up front, you as the player and the lore master know, hey, I've rolled badly. So rather than I'm spoiling this lovely role play I've just done, you can think, hey, I've rolled badly. For some reason, this interaction is not going to go very well. I will play that out and I'll have some agency in why that happens. Maybe I say something embarrassing or rude or I, you know, I stumble over or something like that. And That's then- funny. Actually, yesterday you rolled after we did the <laughs> interaction. So, yes. you know, breaking the rules. So I, I definitely flip it around. Sometimes it just depends how it feels in the moment, I guess. And uh, you did this really nice introduction. <laughs> and then you were like, had a gift. And then you rolled terribly. And then you're like, I drop it. Like, you <laughs> did a really good job as a player of actually, like, turning turning that into a moment. It was it was quite touching. So, you know, you, you, can, you can do it either way. Um, so you roll your traditions check. And um, the DC for that is always 15 for an audience just to reflect the fact that there's a set customs and so on. What about who is the, the, the chosen player hero who's introducing the company? Because there is something to making that decision. It's not. Yes, that's a good point. So there's starting attitudes and there's a table in the player's handbook. It doesn't actually have every single culture in the game. So for example, it doesn't have elves of uh, Rivendell uh, there in the Rivendell region guide. And it tells you, you know, for bardings, what's their attitude of the Dunedain? Unknown. And then there's a section later on which tells you if their starting attitude is this, then um, this will be the, the sort of sort of outcomes at the end. And if the lore master's guide, there's slightly more detail on that, which talks about what the DC will be for the final check um, is determined by that initial uh, assessment. And the traditions check, how that interacts with this part is that if you fail a traditions check then you move down one rung on the ladder so there's basically you can either be favored with a culture friendly neutral askance or unknown or mistrustful which which is very talking again so you know like bjorn um is mistrustful of of outsiders and people that he doesn't know um aragon legolas and gimli uh, arrive in rohan there's that whole interaction and so you know there's <laughs> that's a good example yeah, it's a sort of that's an audience as well i think so it does fit and so basically you have to choose which player character goes forward and this isn't a secret you know so you know the player character would know i know and i like that that table is in the player's guide and that we we know it's helpful to guide our role play knowing which of the cultures we would know and be aware of and who Bjorn is like and oh that there is tension between dwarves and elves and it means that then when we have an audience with someone 
again, there is a moment where we as players get to make a choice and it has an effect. So, hey, we're going to speak to Bjorn. Who makes sense to be the, the member of the group who's going to lead this? Well, we've got an older Bjorning in the party who's probably quite favourable with Bjorn, or are we going to pick someone who's a total stranger? And that means we get to make a decision and we know that the decision we make will have consequences one way or another. Yes, and it's not so much that the audience is only with that person. It's more that they're sort of leading forward and taking the initiative. Once you've done that initial check and you decided that lead player, you then do a role play of the encounter. And as you're going along, keeping an eye on the expectations of the of the person that they're having the audience with and i usually sort of tick or, or cross off things if they've um if they come into effect what's an example of an expectation then that we might have because this is something that does happen behind the screen so say i'm talking to bjorn and you're maybe looking for things that i do or don't say what would be a good tick box for instance not not spoiling anything pre-written but what's a good example of something that if i as theodric said that Bjorn's going to be pleased. Yes. So there are some example expectations. So that wouldn't be any spoilers at all in the lore, lore Master's Guide to help you prepare. Some example motivations would be the motivation to make money. It might be more relevant to somewhere like Lake Town to extend their influence and some expectations. There might be positive expectations. So you might have the expectations. So thinking like the master of Lake Town and the Hobbit, yes. probably... I'm not sure this is, you know, but he probably had the expectation to be flattered. You know, you would gain bonuses at the end, okay. I imagine, if he was flattered. To find other good people in the world might be a motivation. To be reminded of home, to be left alone. Example of negative expectations. So if someone, if people would disrespect them, they would have a negative modifier. Or if someone asked them for aid. There's a really interesting one from Elrond, which I won't tell you because you're still sort of interacting with him. But there's some expectations that the player characters i think they're quite obvious mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that bjorn wouldn't want people flattering him and or using words overly but there's some other expectations that can be quite unclear and i think it's important when you're doing that role playing segment is to have reactions so yes. if someone says or does something don't just be like well that's minus two you know and, and hide that from the players because then they might make the same mistake again if they have another audience. So I try and give an indication of like, oh, that's really yeah. good. Like, thank you for telling me that. Or, hmm, you know, actually. Yeah, I can think of times that you've reacted badly as one of these these main NPCs and we've realized, oh, we've made a bit of a social faux pas and how we've approached this particular puzzle, which is quite fun. And you, you do, like, I've seen people, there's been a lot of prep. So there was one time that one of your characters. <laughs> this is so funny. He's never used it. You know what I'm talking about now. Do I? Yes. Yes, I do. I know exactly what you're talking about. It was, I, I feel I can tell the story because it's, it's my character and uh, a character which actually follows Theodric. Um, we'll come on to who he is and, and why I made him and how I made him at a later date. But he was looking to impress a dwarf. And to do so, he, he, he had no knowledge of dwarves and had some bad interactions and knew that the audience was going to be really important. So he actually did some research. And this is something the rules encourage because the rules, the players know that 
there are these hidden expectations and it encourages the players to role play maybe with people in in Bjorn's family or or people that know Bjorn to do a bit of research to think oh what would Bjorn like? Let's ask around. Let's ask how we should approach him. So it rewards that kind of play, which is fun. So I've never thought about that before, but that's that's a really astute observation on it because if I know in advance, then I can drop that in if you ask. Yes, and if we speak to people who are close to the the person we're having an audience with, we get that. And then it feels good for us as players if in the audience we do the thing that we've researched. In this case, I learned that dwarves enjoy gifts and are very much into smithing and into masonry and into stone and i had acquired a very valuable piece of marble and i thought great i'm going to start this audience by gifting this piece of marble to this dwarf because it's a gift uh, it's very hard to acquire and it will show that you know me a stranger has done some research great put a lot of effort into doing that for one reason or another, the audience never happened. The game moved on. You know, there was there was events happened that took us in a completely different direction. And that big piece of marble is still sitting exactly where I left it about 30 sessions ago. Well, you don't know that. <laughs> well, I'm assuming it is. I have no idea what's happened to it. <laughs> but the effort that went into it, uh, it never came to anything. But the process was fun. And I think it does speak to this that audiences really matter because the thing I wanted from that audience was like crucial to my character's plot and we will come on to this I needed a key piece of information and if I screwed it up I wouldn't have been able to access it and I knew I had to do everything I had to give myself any possible bonus to get it and uh, yeah it never happened <laughs> I love things like that So you've done the role playing, it's been awesome, and you have noted down the uh, expectations that have been met, or uh, negative ones that have been met as well, and then you move on to the outcome. Uh, and you should know in advance what the outcome is, although I think you have to be a bit flexible in this approach, because yeah. you don't know what the players are going to say or do, so you don't want it to feel scripted. Even though, even though in a way it is, but yes, what you mean is you don't want it to feel like, you want it to feel like what the players have said has had an effect on the outcome rather than just, hey, you were always going to read out this little bit at the end, whether we were rude or whether we were polite, whether we prepped or not. So there's something just to point out here, which I found a bit confusing at first. I think I've got my head around. In the player's handbook, there's a section on the reactions and it talks about favored, friendly, neutral, askance, mistrustful. And it says what the final check might be and what the DC would be and how much they would give it. Yes. But in the lower master's guide, there's a whole different segment which gives you DCs for the final check with people of those different levels, which can change the DC. So that's a bit confusing because sometimes I think the players are reading that and they're like, oh, this is the DC. And I'm like, well, it's not really the DC. And I guess you just set a DC based on what you wanted to be. But there is a section on, so, you know, the, the DC will be higher, the um, more mistrustful they are yes. of the player character. And that's just, you know, a D20 with the pluses or minuses. It's a lot down to luck. It is a lot down to luck. And this is where I feel the rules slightly butt up against the fun. I think it's worth discussing whether there are too many rules for audiences. I think what we've talked about so far 
has been overwhelmingly positive and there are some loads of good stuff in there but i'm not 100 percent in love with all of it hmm. i don't like that the final role is so random yes it does say so generally speaking it's just been a straight d20 it does say uh, it's modified by any bonuses and if an appropriate skill or ability is relevant players can make suggestions that might qualify for a bonus and do say that the, the higher their level, the more likely it is to have a positive outcome in that case. Which is interesting, because I'm not sure I've always run it like that. I... It, I no matter it... how you do it, though, even if you've got an amazing bonus... There's always the chance you roll bad. You, you know, you could still roll a natural one, which is not an automatic failure, but you're, you're unlikely to pass if you've got a final check. Once you prepared it, the way that they suggest in the Lore Master's Guide as opposed to the table and the player's handbook that you, <laughs> again, Keep things so, really simple. Yeah. The player's handbook has got DC like zero, 10, 20 for different outcomes in the uh, lore master's guide. It says, you know, there's, a, there's an example that they give where they've set up this NPC and say, you know, if it's success by a six plus, then it trusts the company enough to give them a quest success by a three to four, they get some gold and they might get a bed for the night Success by zero to minus two, they get a bed. If they fail completely, then they get dismissed with no help. So say you've you've come in, you've done a really good traditions check, and you've you know given a gift and you've had this long discussion and you've role-played through it all, you've met all the expectations and you're a great thing, and then you fail the vinyl check. I find that quite hard to to run and role play. Like why why did they turn them away? Like that doesn't you can come up with things like, well, actually. You know, it seems like there's there's something going on. You know, you can bring something out, but it, it's quite difficult to, to justify to the players. And I think, you know, maybe that's not the right term, but maybe it is because when you're running a game like this and it's all role play and it's all made up and there's rules, you know, in combat, you don't really need to justify anything. There's an AC, you roll the dice, you hit or you miss. That's straightforward. But in social aspects you do sort of have to justify the rules because at the end of the day, I want it to be fun yeah. for, for everyone, myself included. And I also want it to feel fair and grounded in the world. And if there is something that, you know, you role play really well and it goes fantastic and then there's this arbitrary dice roll and you fail, it might feel a bit, well, I don't need to say might. How does it feel? How, how, how do you find it? It can feel very deflating. I think that we as a party are very role-play heavy. We got really into, for instance, the politics of the different communities around the Anduin Vale, including Bjorn and some of the Woodman towns. There was a section of our game where we spent quite a long time moving between them and trying to build up alliances before we did a big quest. And we had a lot of audiences and there was a lot of politicking and thinking about how the cultures were different what they might be interested in we took it pretty seriously i found it a bit deflating sometimes when we put in the effort and we were role-playing and like when the role-playing is going well between a player and the lore master like and you really like riffing off each other it's like a really like fun experience yeah and you know you it maybe goes in an unexpected direction and you really feel like you're in character and then at the end the dice goes against you as so often happens 
I don't know, it, it feels so much more deflating than just, oh, I rolled a dice and I, I missed with a swing of the sword. Because you swing the sword quite a lot, statistically it's likely you weren't always hit, fine. You don't speak to Bjorn in an intense fashion, loads, and therefore there's a curve of how often you do well or not. Like it, It's kind of a one-off, and when you've put in all that effort of role-playing with the lore master, and it goes either really well or really badly just because of an extreme dice roll, I don't know. We talked a bit last time, and I think the journey rules do this well. They reward the play the game wants to see. So it wants you to take journey seriously, to plan them, to prep them, to be cautious, to do the right things. And it rewards that in the way the rules work. I feel that the game wants to reward good role play, which it does to an extent, because it, it you know, there are the things that if we say them, that gives us a wee bonus. But ultimately, it's still a dice roll that's very swingy. It feels like there's not that much reward for good role play. We could role play really badly and get lucky on the dice at the end and be better off mm. than if we've done a really, really good bit of role play that we've all enjoyed. So, you know, you can house rule any system and, you know, at the end of the day, it's your game to run. So how would we do it differently? I, I've not really put that much thought into this. When you were talking there, I was like, I was thinking to myself, could I just have way more expectations, actually? And there's, there's a lot more points you could tick. And if you take enough of them, then you might get to a point where basically you can't fail. And is that fine? Yeah. That'd be one way of doing it. Well, another way of doing it, I suppose, where we could reduce the size of the die. So rather than a D20, maybe make it like a D8. And therefore, a similar thing would happen, which is that the bonuses would have a proportionally much bigger effect. And it would be hard to fail massively. Hmm. Could be one way of doing it. You could remove the final dice roll altogether and just base it on what's said. The downside is it then becomes purely subjective and that wouldn't necessarily work for everyone. I, I don't think there's a perfect way of doing it. And I'm sure that there are some games where people are playing and they're less fast on the role play element of it because it's just one of the pillars of the game. Like not everyone is in love with the role play. And for them, I actually think having a much more structured way of playing through it makes sense. And having a system where it was just up to the role play might put some people off there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe the audience rules aren't designed for our group and they're more designed for the people that, that struggle to, to get into character and role play and, um, uh, and do that. That's the joy of the game for us, I think, is that yeah. um, improv uh, side of it, um, the collaborative story making. I don't feel it's quite right, though. Um, and I don't... Again, it's an example, I think, of the game designers have tried to, and have done pretty well overall, including an element of Tolkien's world, which is these big, meaningful audiences with characters. But because they've ported it over to an existing game system, which doesn't really have much in the way of social rules it's made it difficult and it feels like a bit shoehorned in. There are some other role-playing games that have really nice social encounter rules. So a game I've never played, but I love and would love to run one day is Legend of the Five Rings, which is set in Rokugan, a kind of mythical Japanese type land. And it is about honor and politics and war and the way that the rules 
are for social encounters is it's done almost like a combat that there's to and fro and dice rolls during it which can affect how the social encounter goes like the, the characters will have social abilities and they can almost act within the social setting and that obviously has similar to this they've put the audience part of the game at the heart and they've built custom rules around it so i think it can be done i don't envy the people who have to do it because certainly we've you know adjusted it as we've gone along and it's not that it doesn't work it's just part of the game that leaves me feeling like i'm kind of wanting a bit more uh, you inspired me there to go and uh, pick up my copy of the collector's edition of the One Ring role-playing game, uh, second edition. Ah, uh, yes, the new one, which he's got now. A lovely red with gold inlay book. The book's it's so beautiful. gorgeous. I've got this in the, the Shire supplement, and uh, they're, they're really lovely. I, um, I have to admit that I'm not really planning to run the game because I find the rules a bit head more, and we're settled in the system. Yeah. We've not tried them, but uh, I don't see the need to change. But I really back them to say, one, people want this, and bring out second edition aim, please. But also, two, please. Uh, please. Uh, I'll be really interested to see how the audience rules are on that. But also just to, to have some stuff, uh, inspiration, the Hobbit region guide is amazing. The maps are lovely. Uh, I would love to run some aim games there using that. So in... Tor, second edition, just for comparison, they have a, what they call a council, uh, which I think is the equivalent of audience. And that sequence has been simplified to three steps. You have set resistance, introduction, interaction. Uh, set resistance is based on the, the level of the request. So if it's a reasonable request, the re resistance is lower. And if it's an outrageous request, <laughs> then the resistance is much higher. And that's based on what they're trying to get. And they need to go into them with, you know, a purpose in mind. So they should agree before the council happens what the purpose is. Yes. And then there's the introduction where the spokesperson presents the council, the company, sorry, and the role result sets a time limit for the council. Mm. Then you have the interaction, which is the main part of the council, and successful roles accumulate to match or exceed the resistance and they give examples of different checks that you can use yeah. uh, to do that in the one ring it's all about getting successes which are i think on a um there's a special uh, d12 uh, dice so you need to, to get successes on rolls and that's the ones that you're you're adding up so it's quite a different system but you can see and i, I wonder if you know people have discussed that part of this might be you know they're using the the one ring and then they'll when they're doing aim it'll probably be quite similar so i wonder if aim second edition will have um, similar structure to that. And I, I like this because I like the idea that it's saying it depends on what you're asking for. Yes. And that determines how likely you are to succeed. I think this is an area in the first edition AIM rules, which is ripe for some tweaking. There's probably some great homebrew stuff out there already. There may be groups who play purely with the rules as they are in the book or who ditch the audience rules altogether or who have homebrew rules. We've certainly mixed and matched as we've gone along. And I think after each audience, we've often talked about how it's not quite the way we'd want it. And we've tweaked it as we've gone, but we'd love to hear if there are any other groups. If you have homebrew rules, 
email us in because I don't know what the solution to the audience rules is. And I would love to know if people have some ideas because I don't like to be down on it without having a solution. And it's not that I think audiences don't work. I have just had some experiences which have left me wanting. Hmm. That topic in the second edition of Tor, they have a whole segment and it says awarding effective role playing. And to cut that short, they talk about if you think that the, the delivered speech from my player character touches topics that are relevant, then they can gain dice. So you basically have more dice that you roll to get more successes. The rules are really helpful to have a structure to these social encounters. And there are some rules about social encounters in the Dungeon Master's Guide uh, because there's there's so much in there. I remember skimming over them before and I they've got a sort of similar slant. They're not as in-depth, I would say. Maybe someone will email and say, read the Dungeon Master's Guide. That would be... <laughs> Please do, but, but, but don't. But do. But don't. So, Josh, why don't you roll the final audience check now for this? Or who's having an audience of Hugh? Well, that's a good question. I feel we're just having a conversation. Oh, it's just... Okay, so... Roll a deception check. <laughs> Natural one. I'm I'm terrible at deception. I would do very poorly. Maybe it should be traditions. I um, we've we've spoken about a lot there in audiences, and some of the tricky parts of running them, from my perspective, and the experience of being a player in them, from Josh's perspective. Yeah. It does seem quite heavy on the lore master in prep. So if you're playing in a game, be generous to your lore master when you want to do audiences and be forgiving. Overwhelmingly, I've enjoyed the experience of talking to the big characters. I just find the outcomes sometimes a little frustrating. That said, we've also benefited when we've rolled probably higher than we deserved and we've got more than we maybe earned role playing. Hmm. But we'd love to know a good way forward. So please do get involved. No emails except on party business. And comments, suggestions, and questions to thefellowshipphase at gmail.com. The long year turns to its close. Much we have accomplished these last seasons. Our fellowship disbands, but is not broken, and we will return. On the next episode of... The Fellowship Phase.